She never thought she'd see daylight again. Today, Friday, May 10th, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Dramatic scenes in Bangladesh. A woman trapped in the wreckage of the Rana Plaza collapse for more than two weeks is found alive. People were praying. They were saying Allah, Allah, and everyone was so happy. Also, undocumented immigrants find their voice. Back in the day, people were afraid to tell their names. People were afraid to do interviews. And now we vocally share our stories because we've realized how important they are. Plus, the Maasai people of East Africa discovered their name has value. Dirt bikes, motorcycles. The Portuguese company registered the trademark, the Maasai trademark, and without Maasai permission to commercially exploit it. Protecting cultural identity ahead on the world. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We begin today's program with a moment of happiness and what's been a heartbreaking story. Earlier today, rescuers in Bangladesh pulled a young woman from the rubble of the collapsed Rana Plaza building in the capital, Dhaka. She'd been buried alive for 17 days, ever since the eight-story building came crashing down on April 24th. The death toll from the disaster is still rising. More than 1,000 people are now confirmed dead, most of them low-paid garment industry workers. So today's rescue came as a welcome surprise to everyone at the site. BBC cameraman and producer Salman Saeed was at the scene working when he heard a commotion. Then all of a sudden, uh, when we were then at that spot, everyone was like running here and there. And I, I could see the rescue workers cheering up and they're saying like, we found somebody alive. I spoke to one of the rescue workers and he was so excited. He was saying, yes, it's a miracle that we have found a girl. Her name was Reshma. She looked around uh, like uh, in her late teens, you know. And she was uh, very exhausted when she was uh, coming out. What were you able to see? I was just seeing army officials, the fire brigade and the rescue op people. They were all shouting to each other that we need oxygen. We need to give her some juice, some foods. And they were like putting these bottles of juices and water bottles inside. They were trying to comfort the girl till they could bring her out. And it was like, you know, uh, 20, 30 minutes uh, operation. Can you tell us how she was able to survive? She was uh, actually surviving with the food that was left from her colleagues underneath the um, rubble. This was an eight-story building, Rana Plaza. Um, Do you know what floor she was working on when the building collapsed? I heard she was on the second floor. And physically, how did she seem? How did she appear? When she was coming out, I saw, like, there was an oxygen mask in her face. Uh, The army officials were trying to give water. She was so exhausted, you know, and I could see that... Her body was, there was no, not much flesh. And she was like exhausted, crying. People were all trying to give her comfort, you know. And then immediately, the rescue workers took her in the ambulance and took her to the nearest uh, military hospital, you know. And everyone, you know, it, it's that moment was people were praying. They were saying Allah, Allah, and Allah, and everyone was so happy. They were praying that so that she can come out alive. Because there was another incident, there was a survivor earlier, and they were trying to bring her out alive, but they could not. Mm. But this time, when they could bring this girl uh, out in safe condition, 
every people out there were so happy. I mean, so many people overjoyed by this news that it is one ray of light in what has been such a horrific event. At this point, over a thousand people have died in, in the building collapse. What is the latest on the owner of this building? The owner is still under um, under the police custody, and he was taken into remand. And he there was a case filed against him. He's still in the cu- police custody. And what's the latest on how the Bangladeshi government is uh, what they're doing to protect workers in the garment industry? They have recently closed, shut down some um, illegal factories after there was another fire incident that took place day before yesterday evening, where uh, for the first time, you know, a factory owner died inside a factory. Mm. How much is the public in Bangladesh pushing the government to do more? Because, I mean, you know, it's just so common. I mean, you cite this fire. People are worried, people, because for garments industry, for Bangladeshi people, it's very important. It's important for the economy of the country. But uh, people are realizing now that safety measures needs to be taken and now, recently, there were some incidents where people, uh, workers didn't want to work in some factories where there was uh, some cracks on the wall and all those things. Salman Saeed, producer with the BBC in Bangladesh, he was at the site of the collapsed Rana Plaza building today when Reshma, uh, one of the survivors, came out. Thank you very much, Salman. Thank you. As Congress continues to debate immigration reform in the days and weeks ahead, one number we've been hearing over and over and will keep hearing is 11 million. It's a key figure in the debate. Reporter Adrian Florido of the public radio collaboration Fronteras set out to find where the number comes from. 11 million, the number of people living in the U.S. illegally. It's heard often in the media, an estimate cited by politicians debating immigration reform. And it's a number that Jeffrey Passell has tracked probably more than anyone else. He's a senior demographer at the Pew Hispanic Center. To reach 11 million, he crunched government data and used this formula. You know, the total number of immigrants minus the number of immigrants here legally is the number who are here without authorization. Sounds simple, right? It's not. In fact, 26 years ago, when Ronald Reagan signed an amnesty for about 3 million immigrants, many people argued there were three to four times that many. The formula Passell uses, actually quite complicated, is now largely accepted as the best one. Today, there's a much broader agreement about how many people we're talking about and about who we're talking about. So then let's accept that 11 million figure as the number of people here without documents. That's more than the total population of Greece, by the way. But who are they? Some of what the Pew Center has found is probably no surprise. About 6 million of the 11 million are Mexicans, 60 percent are men. The majority live in large states like California, Texas, Illinois, and New York. But more than 4 million immigrants without legal status now live in the Midwest and the South, with states like Georgia and Oklahoma seeing this population rise fast. More of the U.S. now has a stake in the immigration debate. It's a part of, I think, the demographic underpinnings of of what's turned this into a national debate instead of a local debate. There are also hundreds of thousands of Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Chinese, Koreans, and Filipinos. Some entered legally, didn't plan on staying, but did. Ben Winograd is a former attorney at the American Immigration Council. About 40 percent enter the country through a port of entry and then just overstate their visa. And if you look harder at the 11 million, another picture emerges, one of families. The majority of undocumented immigrants live with their families. So under one roof, there can be a mix of legal status, a dad without papers, a daughter who's a citizen, and so on. Gloria Mejia's family can show how complicated things can get. ¿Cómo te fue la escuela? Bien. Bien. 
On a recent afternoon, Mejia picked up her eight-year-old son Joaquin from school in San Diego. Mejia is undocumented, but her son Joaquin, he's a citizen. Me da tristeza no poder, poder que vaya yo ayudarlos más. Mejia says she has a hard time helping her kids get ahead. Hay, hay ocasiones donde él quiere salir y, y él juega soccer. She brings up one example. Her son, Joaquin, a U.S. citizen, wanted to join a soccer team. But the team would travel to tournaments outside California, and Mejia would need to help chaperone. But she's afraid to travel, risk deportation. So she told her son no. The example that you've given is so perfect that you can't travel across states. To participate in a soccer tournament, it may mean that a, a mother is less likely to go to a PTA conference. Michael Fix is with the Migration Policy Institute. Research shows, he says, that children who are U.S. citizens but whose parents are undocumented in the shadows are set back cognitively, socially, and educationally. So when we think about the estimated 11 million people here illegally, demographer Jeff Passell says it's important to also think about the 4.5 million U.S. citizen children with undocumented parents. Instead of 11 million people, we're talking more about 16 million people. For the 11 million number that we hear so often, the true number may be far higher. For The World, I'm Adrian Florido in San Diego. Maria Gabriela Pacheco, she's known as Gabby, is the director of the Bridge Project in Miami. It aims to help immigrants living here without papers to become U.S. citizens. A few years ago, Gabby walked 1,500 miles from Miami to Washington, D.C. Her goal is to get Congress to pass the DREAM Act, which would have legalized millions of undocumented immigrants, including Gabby. Now Gabby's back in D.C. listening to Congress debate immigration once again. Gabby, you're 28, but you were just a kid in uh, 1983 when your family moved to Miami from Ecuador. At what point growing up here did you realize that I don't have papers? I don't have the legal papers required to be considered a U.S. citizen. Well, it was a huge moment of anxiety. And I was in eighth grade um, when I kind of realized that um, I didn't have documents and my family didn't have documents as well. And so for me, what started happening is that because my desire and dream to go to college, you know, I knew that there was going to be a barrier once I graduated from high school. I started taking as many classes as I could. And uh, even though I was part of an honors program, um, I started taking college level classes uh, and just living in school practically from seven o'clock in the morning to sometimes eight, nine o'clock at night, uh, just absorbing as much as I could because I felt that my life uh, as, a, as a student would end uh, once I turned 18 and once I graduated from high school. Did you end up by going to college? I was able to go to college, and I think that's what drove me to make sure that I fought so that other people had the same opportunity, and more importantly, my sisters, um, who one of them wanted to be a nurse, and the other one wanted to be um, in the Air Force. So what is your own status now? Well, right now I'm I'm waiting for uh, DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood arrivals program. I requested it last year, and um, I've been waiting a little bit over six months for that. So hopefully uh, we call ourselves documented. So hopefully I would be able to have this DACA pretty soon. And explain what DACA would actually give you. Well, DACA is a a, a two-year program. Um, it was announced last year on June 15, 2012, by President Obama that comes from the Department of Homeland Security that practically says you're not deportable for two years. And um, with that comes a work permit that would allow me to then get a driver's license and as well a Social Security number. So you, you you've kind of have a, a, a stay of deportation for two years now? 
Correct. So you fought hard for the DREAM Act. Uh, Your well-publicized walk from Miami to D.C. was uh, pretty notable. Now, uh, the DREAM Act didn't get passed. Three years later, you're back in Washington watching the Senate debate on immigration up close. As someone who has a lot at stake in the debate, what's it like to be looking inside the political business of immigration right now? Well, it reassures me this sentiment that I have in my heart, which is I'm an American. And to me, sitting in a classroom when I was in my AP government classes, I remember my, our teachers pushing and saying, you know, we needed to be civically engaged and that we needed to be part of the process and that voting was so important. And so at 18, I remember seeing all my friends voting or registering to vote. And sitting in that room and watching the senators and being so up close to, um, one, history in the making, and two, just how our, our democracy works, I felt in awe and I felt very humbled and, and felt good to be in that room, felt good to um, be able to consider myself an American. Are you hopeful about what's going to emerge from the current debate in Congress? I'm extremely hopeful. Um, One, because the climate has really changed. I've been in this immigration fight for almost 10 years. And back in the day, people were afraid to tell their names. People were afraid to do interviews. And now we vocally share our stories because we've realized how important they are. And through our stories, we've been able to gather so much support. And seeing the bipartisanship that is happening was, you know, a sign that both the Democrats and the Republicans really have a big stake in this and want to get this done. Gabby Pacheco, an activist on immigration issues, she directs the Bridge Project in Miami, which aims to help undocumented immigrants become U.S. citizens. Gabby, very good to meet you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Find more of our ongoing coverage of immigration, including our recent story on families split by immigration status connecting across the U.S.-Mexico border fence in Tijuana. That story and the rest of our global nation coverage is at theworld.org. Still ahead on the show, imagine voting for an arrow or a bucket. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of WomenHeart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's called The Liberator, and it's not your average handgun. Cody Wilson, a law student at the University of Texas, designed it and then printed it out himself using a 3D printer. You might have been hearing about this lately. Earlier this week, Wilson posted a video of himself successfully testing a one-shot plastic 3D printed handgun. It's part of an effort by a group called Defense Distributed. The nonprofit wants to freely create and distribute plans for a whole range of guns on online. But they've got to put those plans on hold. The State Department has told Wilson to take the design down. Robert Beckhusen of Wired.com has been following this story for a while now. First of all, Robert, I mean, a 3D printed gun. Walk us through the technology. What do you need to do this? Well, 3D printers work by squirting out very thin layers of melted plastic until the plastic builds up, hardens, and cools into an object. The shape is based on computer-aided design or CAD files. For Wilson's gun, uh, the gun itself has 16 files, one file for each of the gun's parts. Uh, The only non-printed part is a firing pin. And there's a small block of steel used to make it seen by metal detectors, and that's added in during the assembly stage. The whole process takes about eight hours. How much are these printers? They vary in price. 
Wilson's printer was a Stratasys Dimension SST, which he bought used for $8,000. But they also range from $1,300 to several hundred thousand dollars. Mm. And the bullets, are they also printed? No. You've got to use real ammunition. That's right. Why is Cody Wilson doing this? Well, um, he's an anarchist, essentially, and sees the government as having illegitimate authority. And there's this term called propaganda of the deed in that you carry out a provocative political action to inspire your sympathizers, uh, provoke the state into reacting, and thereby proving in his mind that the state is illegitimate restricting individual liberties, economic innovation, and so on. Um, so in that sense, he's a provocateur. Well, if he but was it, looking for government reaction, he got it. The State Department has now demanded the uh, design taken offline. What is their issue here? Well, I think it's caught them off guard, but the State Department believes Wilson, by uploading the files to the web, may be in violation of U.S. arms export controls. When you're uploading to the internet, you're allowing it to be downloaded anywhere. And so you'd have to question whether it's international pressure. Wilson's complied and removed the files from his website, but the files are still out there. And it's also a legal gray area. There's an open question whether Wilson could opt out of the regulations since his files are distributed under the public domain. I mean, there were 100,000 downloads of the design uh, before the State Department made this order. Um, Does that translate as 100,000 potential guns already? Not quite. They are being downloaded as we speak. Um, They're being hosted on several other file sharing sites right now. But how many people have a printer? How many people are downloading just to, you know, keep them and see for themselves? And Robert, a reality check, is there a legitimate concern about terrorist groups or arms traffickers being able to mass produce weapons uh, anytime soon using 3D printers? I don't think they really need to. Technically, it's quite simple. But more practically, if you're a foreign terrorist group or a global arms dealer, it's questionable whether you choose what's unreliable and relatively expensive gun that can only fire one bullet, as opposed to, say, an ordinary automatic rifle, or even manufacturing a crude homemade zip gun or Sten gun with components available much more easily. Uh, but as the technology progresses over the long term, it starts to become very unpredictable. Well, Robert Beck, who's in of Wired.com, thanks for telling us about this. Thank you. Cultural references are often used in marketing campaigns, sometimes even a whole culture itself. Consider the Maasai. Just the name of the East African ethnic group conjures up a specific image of a semi-nomadic people who live in Kenya and Tanzania. Rugged warriors come to mind. And that image gets used to sell stuff. But the Maasai don't get a cut of these sales. Now that may change. Maasai elders will be in London next week to consider claiming ownership to their cultural brand. Ron Layton of the nonprofit Light Years IP will be meeting with them. He offers one example of the Maasai name being used as a marketing tool. Dirt bikes. You know, Dirt bikes. Of, yes. Off-road bikes and motor, motorcycles. A Portuguese company registered the trademark for the use of the word Maasai on off-road motorcycles. Rough country is you know, what we recognize to be one of the many wonderful things about the Maasai. So associating their off-road motorcycles with that brand gives them a rub-off of some of the, the things we all respect about the Maasai. Without the Maasai permission, whether it's being done culturally right and without the Maasai permission uh, to you know, commercially exploit it. What about Maori tattoos, which don't really kind of fall under you know, the category of a product? It's more of a style that has been kind of spread worldwide. Is that something that you would go after? 
Uh, well, it's not for me to decide those sorts of things. It's for the the culture itself to decide that uh, they want to bring something under control. In some cases, there's a revenue opportunity. And if you consider that some of the owners of brands that are not so cultural, um, like Paris Hilton, she certainly earns income out of everything that's associated with her brand. Mm. So you can understand that people who don't have any, very much in the way of other assets might feel that this is a way to reduce the poverty amongst their community. Right. I mean, and, how much money yeah. do the people stand to gain by legally securing the rights to their cultural brand? Uh, well, it varies uh, culture by culture, of course. But the Maasai brand is one of the most used cultural brands in the world. And so there is a substantial potential income. If it was owned by a corporation right now, a corporation would be earning tens of millions of dollars or more than that each year. Um, but can we assume that the Maasai would then make tens of millions of dollars if they controlled that brand? There's a very long way from where we are right now. The Maasai have not yet uh, really examined all of the opportunities or all of the issues and challenges of getting to the point where they have any income coming out of it and they have the cultural control that matters as much to them as anything else. Where are you most proud about where uh, your work has actually gone to transforming the economies of people? Yes, rural Ethiopia is, is a very important story that we were very successful with. Ethiopia invented coffee. They started exporting it under various brand names uh, about 500 years ago. So if you ask the simple question, who owns the reputation of Ethiopia fine coffee? It's the Ethiopians. As we started working with them and giving them the kind of access to information, they decided to take action. And in 2005 to 2007, we set out to register trademarks for the coffee brands. Now, registering a trademark doesn't give you any money, so there was a lot more to it than that. But the most, most important part of this was saying, well, who exactly owns it? Because a big sector of the coffee industry, particularly big coffee, decided that they didn't want Ethiopia to own their brands. And that was the wrong decision. And it turned mm -hmm. out that they had to back down from that viewpoint. Generally speaking, is there a concern that transforming a culture into a product to be bought and sold, could that cheapen the culture? Oh, that is a very important issue that uh, people like the Maasai and uh, Maori have talked about in depth, and, uh, and they share information with each other and talk about it a lot. It is something that each culture decides what they want to do. We provide information and will support and train, um, but none of it is our decision. Ron Layton, the CEO of Light Years IP. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. We recently reported on how climate change is impacting the traditional Maasai culture. You'll find that story complete with video from the traditional Maasai pastoral lands of East Africa at theworld.org. This is The World on Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, this weekend's elections in Pakistan will feature more than 150 parties and no names on the ballots, only symbols. This candidate's not too happy with his symbol, a bucket. I was very sad. Election symbol is forced upon me. The election commissioner completely failed. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Womenheart, and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients, who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Pakistanis go to the polls tomorrow. The election marks a historic moment. It's the first time ever that Pakistan is due to transition from one democratically elected government to another. More than 150 parties are fielding candidates. But the ballot won't have the names of the political parties printed on them. Instead, it will have graphic symbols representing each of the contesting parties. Fahad Desmukh reports from Karachi. The symbols are used on ballots because over 40% of adult Pakistanis are illiterate. But even for Pakistanis who can read, the ballots are wildly confusing. There are almost 150 political parties running in national and local elections, and many of them are breakaway factions of other parties. There are at least 17 different factions of the Pakistan Muslim League, for example, contesting under slightly different variations of the same name. So using symbols makes sense. Once a party gets a particular symbol allotted, they then build their entire persona, their campaign around that symbol. Talat Aslam is senior editor of the News International newspaper. As he points out, a symbol should ideally be something appealing to voters and represent a party's spirit. So, for example, at the moment, Imran Khan has a cricket bat, which, of course, suits him because he's been a cricketer in the past. And now that bat has become thematized by the party and there are giant bats being paraded around the city to attract attention. Like the cricket bat, party symbols are woven into all campaign material, posters and billboards, songs, speeches and TV ads. This is one of the most famous political anthems of the Pakistan People's Party. The refrain says, the arrow will pierce the enemy's heart. The arrow, of course, is the party's election symbol. And this is a campaign song for the PMLN, the party of Nawaz Sharif, who's a frontrunner to become the next prime minister. At PMLN rallies, Sharif supporters bring stuffed tigers and sometimes even a real live caged tiger. In recent weeks, the PMLN and Imran Khan's party have engaged in a playful war of words. At this rally, Imran Khan waves a cricket bat and yells, With this cricket bat, we will flog all of the circus tigers. Not to be outdone. Nawaz Sharif's brother, Shahbaz, badmouths the PMLN's rivals, saying... Together, on May 11th, the tiger will destroy the arrow and the bat. But not everybody's happy with the current system. The problem is, there's a limited number of officially sanctioned symbols, so few parties get symbols that really mean anything. It's especially bad for independent candidates. They have to draw from the leftovers after all 150 parties have had their pick. And they're definitely not as impressive as tigers or arrows. This year, the symbols left over for independence include a toothbrush, a cassette tape, and a bed. I was very sad when I was at a time to choose election symbol for my election campaign. Muhammad Shafiq Kawan is running for a seat in the National Assembly from Karachi. His symbol, a bucket. Awan's campaign headquarters is a hole in the wall in Karachi's financial district with just enough space to seat two people. Above the door hang two plastic buckets. Awan believes the symbol allocation system needs to be reformed. Election symbol is forced upon me. It is not a symbol which is 
liked by me, which is chosen by me. The election commissioner must arrange some actions to independent candidate to choose symbols as they want. And it's not just the allocation system that may need to change. News editor Talat Aslam says it's about time the symbols themselves were updated. They're kind of extremely quaint. I mean, they're like, they come out of storybooks, like almost the 19th century. <laughs> there are these uh, black and white line drawings, like pens and ink pots and peacocks and, you know, all kinds of uh, strange things, yeah. But for now, Muhammad Shafi Kawan is making the best of a bad situation. He says the bucket may actually serve him well as a symbol of the common man in Pakistan, since every household here has one. For the world, I'm Fahad Desmuk in Karachi, Pakistan. I'd certainly remember him, but then again, I like buckets. We have pictures of the independent candidate and his bucket symbol there at theworld.org. And by the way, Fahad let us know that A.Q. Khan, known as the father of Pakistan's nuclear bomb, has created a political party. It's called the Save Pakistan Movement. And the party symbol? Yes, it's a rocket. Election rules in New York City could be changing to allow non-citizens to vote. A proposal discussed yesterday before New York City's council would allow non-citizen immigrants who are in the country legally to vote in local elections. New York City wouldn't be the first place to do so, but it would be the biggest, possibly involving 800,000 foreign legal residents. City Councilman Daniel Drum is sponsoring the bill. He's a Democrat whose district in Queens includes the immigrant-rich neighborhoods of Jackson Heights and Elmhurst. In the district that I represent, it's 68 percent immigrant. Uh, People who would become eligible under this legislation to participate in the election process by voting, that would make those people much more civically engaged in the community and have a stake in the decision-making process. And so that's really the purpose of this legislation. As it stands now, one in five New Yorkers cannot participate in municipal elections because they are a recent immigrant. This law would change that. Now, when we say legal immigrants, we're talking about people who are not yet citizens but do have a green card, correct? Correct. People who have green cards, perhaps student visas, people who are asylum seekers, they would be eligible. The law reads anybody who's been lawfully present in the city for six months or more would be eligible to vote under this legislation. And where are many of these uh, immigrants from? They're from all over the world, actually. In my community, my community is uh, 40% Asian, 40% Latino. But even within that, there's diversity. I have Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Korean, Chinese in the Asian community. I have Colombian, Ecuadorian, people from the Dominican Republic in terms of Latinos. And they say that there are over 167 languages spoken in my district alone. Jackson Heights is perhaps the most diverse area in the whole world. Now, prior to this push to vote for non-citizens, have they ever been able to vote in any elections in New York? Yes. As a matter of fact, there is a history of voting rights for um, even those who are not documented. In 1968, the state legislature approved voting for parents in school board elections. So if you were the parent of a child in the public school system, whether you were documented or undocumented, you had a right to vote in those elections. That ended after 30 years because uh, mayoral control of the schools came into effect and school boards themselves were eliminated. 
And up until the 1920s, I gather, uh, many states in the U.S. Uh, allowed non-citizens to vote, including New York and New York City, correct? That is correct. So for almost the first 150 years of the history of this country, immigrants were allowed to vote. Originally, when you came to this country, if you were a white landowner, you could vote. Then women had to fight for the right to vote. Then African Americans had to ensure their right to vote in the 1960s through mm. the Voting Rights Act. So there has been a history in the United States of people seeking redress from their government on voting rights issues. And uh, we feel this is just a, another step in the logical progression of human and civil rights for people in this country. I mean, the civic engagement is a strong argument, but uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg opposes the idea. And his point is that voting is the most important right we're granted as citizens. You should have to go through the process of becoming a citizen and declaring allegiance to this country before being given that right. That's a quote from the mayor. And I guess many of our listeners would also say, yes, let's figure out a path to citizenship and wait until immigrants get that before they get the right to vote. Don't you think that's logical? No, I don't believe that's logical. Uh, That contradicts what the founders of this country stood for. And in the original days when you came here, you were allowed to vote. And there has been precedent set already for people to vote in New York State. And I don't believe that citizenship is a precursor to voting. It was never that way for 150 years in this country, and it shouldn't be that way now. New York City Councilman Daniel Drom, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Part of Councilman Drom's district in Queens, as we heard earlier, is the extremely diverse neighborhood of Elmhurst. In fact, Elmhurst, New York, 11373 is, according to National Geographic, the most ethnically diverse zip code in the U.S. And that diversity makes Elmhurst Hospital a medical melting pot. That's how Rivka Galchin describes Elmhurst Hospital in her story in this week's New Yorker magazine. It's titled Every Disease on Earth. So, Rivka, set the scene for us. What's the impression you get when you walk into this hospital, assuming you're not going to the emergency room? Is the diversity of patients and doctors immediately evident? Well, I mean, even before you get to the hospital, you're sort of going by the Chinese bakery and the Spanish bakery and the Korean video store. And then when you come into the hospital, you know, in some sense, it's a comfortably normal hospital. They do, of course, have the information desk labeled in probably 50, 60 languages. So it has the feel of an airport. And it also has the feel of an airport a little bit in that it's so chaotic. Right. So how many diseases are they skilled at identifying? I mean, I guess I couldn't even really say. It probably comes off the most dramatically with infectious diseases because there's so many infectious diseases that we really only associate with other parts of the world. Whereas a disease like malaria, which we fortunately just hardly see it all in the U.S. It's almost a kind of a humdrum disease. Everyone's already learned about it. I mean, if there's a reason uh, for Elmer's Hospital's ability to spot these diseases, it sounds like one doctor uh, that you profile, Dr. Joseph Lieber. How did he get to this position, caring for all these nationalities and knowing all these diseases? Um, the amazing thing about Dr. Lieber is um, there are, of course, also like wonderful infectious disease specialists at Elmhurst and uh, wonderful surgeons who are sort of familiar with kind of fairly unusual presentations from around the world. But Dr. Lieber sort of is familiar with everything and every specialty. His own training was a little different than maybe your mainstream physician in New York. He trained in Guadalajara, Guadalajara, Mexico. So that's a very big urban center. So already from the beginning, besides his intellectual interest in all sorts of obscure diseases, as well as things you're going to have to take care of all the time, he just was exposed to things that 
most doctors aren't going to be. For example, I remember him telling me about how he saw a lot of cases of leprosy, which I think for most of us is only a disease in the Bible. You mm. don't really think of anyone having it. You followed Dr. Lieber around when you reported the story. Give us an example of the kind of global diagnostic savvy he has. It's always fun to follow Dr. Lieber around. In part, I mean, even when you just have sort of a regular renal transplant patient coming in, they might be from Greece, and the next one will be from the Dominican Republic, and the next one will be from India, and some of them will be sourcing their drugs because they're cheaper from other countries, and he's going to be familiar with how that's going to change things. And like I remember there was a woman, she herself was from the Philippines, was a newlywed, and had just passed through Hong Kong, but it also had a number of cosmetic surgeries that are popular in Brazil that can lead to sort of shortness of breath injections, you know, sort of all sorts of plastic surgeries that are more often done in those countries. And he was sort of able to sort of pull together all the different kind of noisy clues. Yeah, another one you point out is uh, the presence of these little sparkles across the body that might throw some doctors really for a loop. Exactly. It, it, on an x-ray, you can get it's sort of a very mysterious and kind of beautiful x-ray you can get. Uh, just a chest x-ray, and, and it just it seems like someone just sprinkled glitter all across the patient's chest. And you would think, you know, my God, has this person been like working in a strange jewelry factory, inhaling God knows what small metals? I mean, I don't know what kind of diagnostic guesses you'd be led to unless you knew that, oh, you know, patients who especially Korean patients or a few other people who go for Korean acupuncture, they purposely break off the tips of the needles and leave them under the skin. And so that probably has absolutely nothing to do with fever or sputum or whatever it is. And so he knows not to be distracted, sort of glittering chest x-ray. Right. And it's interesting that you note that despite the heavy workload and non-competitive pay with private hospitals, is a lot of doctors return to Elmhurst Hospital after residency. Did you find out why? Almost always people say Dr. Lieber was a huge role model for me. And they say, I missed the patients. I sort of, I went to another hospital. It was, it was you know, slightly more organized. And mm. <laughs> there was a, less of a workload and maybe the paycheck was a little better. But people really missed the patient population. I think also, you know, people crave that intensity. That may be why they went into the field in the first place. You can read Rivka Galchin's story, Every Disease on Earth, about Elmhurst Hospital in Elmhurst, New York, in this week's New Yorker magazine. Rivka, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for your time, Marco. Thanks. Our geo-quiz today is about an ugly fish. There are hundreds of species of cichlids in the world. Cichlids are tropical fish, popular among aquarium enthusiasts. Some are tiny, but the Mangarahara cichlid grows to be as big as a person's hand. The experts praise the beauty of its fins and the ugliness of its face. Ouch. Oh, and it's very picky when it comes to its water. Cichlids um, do need really good, clean water, and this species in particular likes flowing water. It's a, a fish from a river. Specifically the Manga Rahara River. We want you to name the African country where this river is located. Actually, the river's dry now. It's water diverted to irrigate rice fields on the island nation, which is one reason our ugly cichlid is endangered. We'll name the country and tell you why scientists are desperate to find some female Manga Rahara cichlids after the break.
lay down on the couch next. You're listening to The World from PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Back to that ugly fish in our geo-quiz. The Mangarahara cichlid is named after the one river on Earth where it once thrived. The Mangarahara River in Madagascar, the answer to our quiz today. Unfortunately, there are no fish in that river anymore. The river has been dammed for irrigation purposes in Madagascar, so uh, most of the water has been diverted to fields for rice growing. That's Brian Zimmerman, aquarium curator at the London Zoo. He cares for two of the last three known Mangarahara cichlids around. The third is in Berlin, and all three are male. So Zimmerman's leading the search for a female. He's hoping a private collector has one somewhere, but breeding the species isn't exactly the stuff of romance. For one thing, Zimmerman describes the males as gorgeously ugly. The males that we've got are a sort of bluish-gray color, And they're quite distinctive in that their fins are quite long and flowing, and they've got very um, distinctive red margins on the ends of them. They've got sort of big, thick lips, and they're sort of um, quite ugly looking in appearance other than the the beautiful fins. Mm, And the females are even less attractive, no fancy fins. But looks aside, it's hard to get these fish to procreate even when you've got a female. Zimmerman says the London Zoo found out the hard way. When the fish first came into our collection 12 years ago, there were a number of individuals. I think we had 12 altogether, some of which were females. Of course, they were all siblings because they were from one group. And because cichlids are a bit aggressive at times, particularly when they're forming the pair bond, um, none of the females actually grew up to maturity, so we weren't even able to breed them. Now, the two remaining males aren't getting any younger, and the search for a mate is urgent. So check your aquarium. You might have that female cichlid the London Zoo is looking for. We have pictures of the fish, male and female, at theworld.org. Judge for yourself. Beauty is, after all, in the eye of the beholder. Anyway, those fish could use a little help with all the pressure. We humans have the psychoanalyst couch for that. I'm working with a new therapist, you know, terrific, absolutely terrific. He's, he's been putting me in touch with my inner maggot, which is helping me a great deal. And, you know, I finally feel like I found my place. And you know what? It's right back where I started. Well, the number one psychoanalyst couch has got to be Sigmund Freud's. It sits in the Freud Museum in London. You can bet it's seen its share of dreams, memories, traumas, and phobias. And now you might say the couch is in need of a bit of therapy itself. In honor of Freud's 157th birthday this week, the museum is planning to get the couch reupholstered. Dawn Kemp is the acting director of the Freud Museum in London. She says Freud's couch is a boudoir, chaise longue, meets medical exam table. It was given to Freud by a patient, a Madame Benvenisti, in the late 1890s. So it's over 130 years old. As you can imagine, there are many hundreds of people have lain on it, and each for 50 minutes at a time. 50 minutes it's, being the psychiatric hour. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And I think it's, it really now deserves a little bit of attention itself. It has seams that are coming apart. There is a spring that's actually protruding now through the undyed linen fabric and has tears and holes in places. So we just really want to give something back to this iconic piece of furniture. The chair is draped in a Kashkai rug from Iran, just as it was when Freud sat behind it. It's the rugs that I think made it such an icon. They also they kind of transfer it into being quite like a magic carpet and mm. the association with dreams in that half-waking state. 
Now, one of several well-known people who lay on Freud's couch was the late American poet Hilda Doolittle. She went simply by H.D., and she was analyzed by Dr. Freud in the 1930s. Susan Friedman, an English professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, has studied their relationship. H.D. went to Vienna specifically to see Freud. She really wanted a spiritual adventure that would help her unlock her creativity. In 1933, she was absolutely certain that there would be another terrifying great war that would engulf Europe. And she had been devastated by the First World War in a personal way. And she was not producing very much poetry. So she went to Freud for help as a writer and as a woman. Sometime later, uh, she wrote a book called Tribute to Freud. What did she have to say about the couch? She liked very much lying on that couch. She couldn't see Freud. Uh, His chair was behind the pillow. So she knew he was a presence right behind her. But one of the things that she mentioned is that when he would get excited about some kind of interpretation or a dream or some set of ideas they worked out together, he would pound the back of the couch in back of her head. (laughs) Maybe that's why it needs some work today. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps it is. A lot uh, seemed to be at stake in those sessions between H.D. and Freud, it sounds. Um, So her relationship with Dr. Freud, how would you describe it? Just patient-doctor or more complex? She considered herself a student of Freud. She wasn't studying to become an analyst, but she understood that he was very concerned about the legacy of psychoanalysis. What he saw psychoanalysis as was a kind of philosophy. It's no accident that he won the Goethe Prize for Literature, but not the Nobel Prize for Science. Uh, And H.D. understood that, and in some sense seemed to feel that what she would be able to do is learn from him the secrets of the soul, that she would take that into a different realm, that is, the realm of art. So, Susan, ultimately, what revelations came out of the sessions between Freud and uh, H.D., and did it unlock her writer's block? It certainly did unlock her writer's block, and I think in 1933, it's almost unimaginable that the great work that she would produce in the 1940s and 50s would ever happen without Freud's helping her to confront the demons, the fear that she felt about violence, about war. And also, he was able to sort of give her permission and say it was okay to be bisexual. He said it's very rare to see truly bisexual people, that's what he believed, but he said you are one. And so instead of feeling guilty about that or somehow or other inadequate, she used this idea of having kind of two selves to write novels and poetry, for example, have two voices. It's kind of extraordinary because his his writings about women are quite narrow, so it's a kind of contradiction about Freud that always interested me. Susan Friedman, an English professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, telling us about one of the more intriguing personalities to have spent time on Sigmund Freud's couch, the late American poet H.D. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, too. And let's get back on the couch now. I had one final question for Don Kemp at the Freud Museum about Dr. Freud's style. You know, I saw one comment that really tickled me about the couch story online from a woman who wrote, Walk into ABC Carpet and Home today, and they have a myriad of sofas, chairs, chaises, among other items that are upholstered in rugs instead of fabric. So, Don, was Freud also ahead of his time as an interior designer? (laughs) Absolutely. He has influenced so much of our culture, and not just an understanding of our minds, but clearly just how we surround ourselves, whether it be film, 
design, music, literature. He's had an immense influence on all of our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. Well, I don't know if it was Freud who first said it, but I'm afraid we're out of time. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. Enjoy the weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.